Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Don Tristan DeLuna's failed attempt to establish a colony in Florida in 1559 provides great material for an historical novel by John Appleyard. We recognize that we really had not established in the minds of many people who Tristan DeLuna really was and what the contribution was. And so we, we kept kidding one another. You write a book about it. No, you write a book about it. Well, that was what I finally did in 1977. We'll discuss photographs taken in the aftermath of the devastating fire of 1901 in Jacksonville. There were a total of uh, 146 city blocks in downtown Jacksonville that were absolutely leveled. And we'll talk with Brandon Hope, author of the book Going Ape, Florida's Battles Over Evolution in the Classroom. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. fleet of ships carrying 1,500 colonists sailed into what is now Pensacola Bay on August 15, 1559. The men, women, and children aboard the ships were led by Spanish conquistador Don Tristan de Luna. Before the colonists could finish unloading their ships, a violent hurricane struck, sinking the fleet on August 19, 1559. John Appleyard tells the story of this ill-fated colonization attempt in the historical novel De Luna, founder of North America's first colony. Appleyard says he first got the idea for the novel more than 65 years ago while he was helping to organize the Fiesta of Five Flags event in Pensacola. Well, De Luna was, uh, of course, a historical figure that had largely been lost in the pages of history. And in 19... 49, a group of uh, local businessmen came together recognizing that Pensacola needed something, something of a magnet for tourism. And so someone suggested that a fiesta, an annual, uh, annual celebration, be held and that DeLuna become the magnet at the center of it. And this group uh, organized and raised a little money. And in 1950, the first celebration of what they call the Fiesta of Five Flags was held. And that celebration has been continued. It had been held every single year, usually in June. And uh, the, the unfortunate about, part about it, of course, is that they have not stayed historically true to the character. They have more, made him a, uh, a, a satin and sequins dressed affair and have not done what they could have done uh, to celebrate the history of the event. In 1959, Appleyard found himself leading the effort to recognize the 400th anniversary of the DeLuna landing. In addition to being a writer, Appleyard was one of the first successful proponents of culture and heritage tourism in Florida. Well, I became, I became a part of the DeLuna story, I guess that's the right way to put it, when I was chosen in the, in the summer of 1958 
to become the state director of the Florida Quadricentennial Celebration, which was to be held the summer of 59, marking the 400th anniversary of DeLuna's arrival here. Uh, quite honestly, I, while I had a history degree, I had no, in, no background at all on either Pensacola or Florida. I had been in Pensacola about 10 years. And so immediately we were, we were set forth with the precious little money and uh, about eight and a half months to create what was literally a, uh, a small, a mini world's fair of history. And the, this was, all of this was put together, of course, with the assistance uh, and, and great cooperation of the Spanish government, the British government, the French government, a lot of help from the people in Mexico, and of course the Florida Historical Society and a number of other resources here uh, contributed to that. And what was put together on Pensacola Beach was a unique celebration. It was in two, really in two parts. For the, for, to house the, the celebration, the historical portion of the celebration, they built a motel, built it almost overnight, but put nothing in there that was a partition. In other words, we had the long corridors, no plumbing showing, so we had these five corridors on which we could put uh, all the historical exhibits. And uh, se separate from that, we recreated the Spanish village, which had been erected here by, uh, we call it the third Spanish settlement. It had been erected in 1722. It was on Santa Rosa Island, not in the location that we uh, recreated it, but it was uh, fortunately uh, for all of Floridians, uh, mid midway through the life of that little village, a an English trader happened to arrive in Pensacola. He was an artist, and he sat on a his vessel out in the bay and sketched the village, uh, beautifully done, and then had the good sense to put a legend underneath so we knew what each of the buildings were. And that, that drawing appeared in an English mag magazine and happily has survived. And that was what we used to recreate the village. And, uh, of course, we populated it with uh, about a dozen artisans who came here from Spain to practice the sort of uh, trades that they would have had had they been here in the 1750s. And that, that was part of the Quadricentennial. All of the exhibits that involved everything you can think of. Uh, the Spanish were very generous in lending materials to us. Uh, the English uh, and, and others were, were helpful. And when, then we got some absolutely un unbelievable help from Colonial Williamsburg. Their people helped us with a lot of design. And, and they had just, of course, a year, a few years before, uh, had the, the anniversary of Jamestown. And so they showed us what they had done, how they had done it. And while we had nothing like the resources they did, we did the best we could. And the, the, the lady who did all of the costuming for their outdoor pageant there called the Common Glory, uh, a lady with a, a degree in costuming from Yale, not only designed our costumes for our wax figures that we had in the, in the display area, she then came here and literally dressed the figures for us. They couldn't, you couldn't have asked for more help than we did. But anyway, it came together and the celebration opened on the 14th of uh, May in, uh, in, 1950, in 1959. Uh, we had a, a great assembly of uh, political figures here uh, from, the, from the senators and the governor everybody came and that opened the door and we continued in operation through the 30th of September of that year the last week was devoted to having bus loads of all the uh, high school seniors from the county who came and went through the uh, with the guided tours through the exhibit so we felt we had a success uh, once again when it was all over the man who was the, the director the the head of the commission uh, we became a very close friend of mine we sat there month after month agonizing with one another because with all that was done we recognized that we really had not established in the minds of many people who Tristan DeLuna really was and what the contribution was. And so we, we kept kidding one another. You write a book about it. No, you write a book about it. Well, that was what I finally did in 1977. And that's the story from which we tell the story to, to groups today.
Apple Yard did write the book, and it's now being published by the Florida Historical Society Press. In the historical novel De Luna, founder of North America's first colony, John Appleyard tells the exciting story of De Luna's effort to establish a permanent settlement in present-day Pensacola, and how his efforts were thwarted by a powerful hurricane that arrived just as the 1,500 colonists were unloading their ships. The De Luna expedition, all 1,550 members of it, were sent here as a, a grand design by the Spanish in the middle of the 1550s. Their design was to seal off North America against intrusion or colonization by the French and the English, both of whom were very interested at this time, but having just passed through a long, bloody, dynastic war, were not prepared financially or otherwise to make a, a commitment at that time. So the, the Spanish put together a grand plan and uh, chose a man who had uh, military experience, who was a, a key figure in government, who, uh, whose family was, uh, was financially able to, to fund a part of the expedition, and he put the, they put together this plan, which was to put assemble in, on the eastern shore of Mexico and come with a large fleet and land here at what they then called Oshus, which we now, of course, call Pensacola. And they were to, they were to place here about one-third of their company. And the remaining two-thirds would march north to the center of what we now call Alabama, to where the Coosa Indian Nation existed. And the Spanish had had prior uh, contact with the Coosans through the work of Hernando de Soto. And the, the goal was now for De Luna to place a small way station there, uh, kind of a halfway point between Oshus and what the third colony was to be, which was to be located about where Cape Hatteras is on the Atlantic coast today. And the grand plan was, as soon as the Atlantic and Gulf uh, colonies were established, then they would be reinforced uh, by more people coming from Spain and from Mexico, and they would spread north and south on the Atlantic, east and west along the Gulf, and then thus literally seal the continent off from the French and the Spanish. And that was the plan, and probably would might very well have succeeded had the hurricane of uh, the 19th of uh, August, 1559, literally devastated the uh, the supply chain and put them, well, the, 15, uh, the survivors of the 1500 struggled to, to stay alive up until the month of uh, May in 1561. Even after the devastating hurricane hit the colony, Don Tristan de Luna wanted to continue to establish the settlement, but his requests for assistance and additional supplies were denied. By this time, situation in, in Europe had changed. There, the situation in France had deteriorated, the political situation there had deteriorated somewhat. And also in, in England, the poor Queen Elizabeth was struggling just to stay on the throne. So the Spanish weren't nearly as worried about the, the situation there. Actually, the, the, there's, a, there's a sort of a parallel there. Early in the, in the 19th century, when uh, Florida became part of the United States, our, our federal government was scared to death that the uh, Spanish deterioration in Latin America would open the door to either French or British or both uh, intrusion in Latin America. And so the, the new government, uh, government uh, President Monroe, quickly moved to establish two things, a South Atlantic fleet, which would be the, the big stick, the deterrent to the foreign powers, and then a Navy yard, which would support the, the new fleet. And so Pensacola was chosen as the, the, uh, na the site for the Navy yard, and, and it was, and of course they pr proceeded with that, and that was the first step in our becoming the cradle of naval aviation, which came a century later. To create the historical novel De Luna, John Appleyard used all of the historical documents available, including diaries, journals, and other accounts of the expedition. Although based on historical fact, Appleyard's book is a fictionalized account. I learned a long time ago that uh, while many of us love history and will read 
tons of biographies and all sorts of things of that kind, the John Q. Citizen does not find that particularly interesting. Take the same information and dramatize it in novel form, make it easy to read with some characters that can be followed, and the, the whole situation changes. And that was why I chose to do that with DeLuna. I used uh, his nephew, who was a member of the company, as the spokesperson, and then, of course, we had uh, an ample knowledge of who some of the key characters were, and a half a dozen key persons carry the story as we go, th- go through it. There has been some controversy over where exactly the attempted DeLuna settlement was. Some have argued that where Appleyard describes the placement of the colony is is incorrect, but since he originally wrote his novel, archaeological discoveries have proven him to be correct. The, the, the Luna Papers, which are the, the sort of the, the, the 16th century Watergate uh, testimony of, the, of this story, indicated that the colony was based in a situation where the ships calling there would be protected from north winds by high bluffs. And so the, those of us who did the planning of the quadricentennial reasoned that that meant what we today call East Pensacola Heights in Pensacola was the site. Others said, no, that didn't make sense. The, the bluffs were too difficult to mount. Uh, this, the colony probably was at the same place where the second Pensacola was established, which is uh, basically where our Naval, Naval Air Station is today. Others Still others said, no, uh, come, come in the middle of the, of the 18th century, the third Pensacola was placed on Santa Rosa Island. That was the logical place. That's where it would be. Well, of course, you could argue back and forth forever because there are no physical remains of the Luna expedition except the wonderful work of archaeologist Dr. Judy Benz, who is now the president of the university, discovered first one and then a second remains of member of ships of the Luna fleet, which are settled down in the mud right below the heights of East Pensacola Heights. The location of the Luna ships uncovered in Pensacola Bay indicate that Appleyard's conclusions were correct. St. Augustine, established by Pedro Menendez de Avales in 1565, is recognized as the oldest continuous European settlement in what would become the United States. Had De Luna been able to create a permanent colony at Pensacola six years earlier and expand northward and westward as he had planned, American history may have been quite different. The John Appleyard novel, De Luna, founder of North America's first colony, is published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can see the Florida Frontiers blog. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society where you can get our daily post today in Florida history. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain seen sunny days that I thought would never end I 
I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the 1901 fire in Jacksonville burned down most of the downtown area, right? No, that's correct. It was uh, Friday, actually, May 3rd, 1901. Uh, Jacksonville experienced its most devastating fire. In fact, it was the most devastating metropolitan fire in Florida. Um, There were a total of uh, 146 city blocks in downtown Jacksonville that were absolutely leveled. Uh, Between 9 and and 10,000 people were left homeless uh, by the afternoon. Um, total of, of approximately $15 million worth of, of property damage. Um, luckily, though, there were really only seven uh, reported uh, deaths due to the uh, the actual fire, um, but uh, there were some eyewitness accounts that would uh, lead us to believe there were probably more that were unreported. Um, but it was just an absolutely, absolutely devastating uh, uh, conflagration that uh, uh, really had kind of long-term impacts on, on uh, Jacksonville's history. Now, here at the Library of Florida History, you have some really remarkable photographs uh, documenting this tragic event. Yeah, that's right. And oftentimes, it are the, the, the photographs in our collection that really uh, help people to uh, understand what life was like in the past and, and really help to bring these historical periods to life. And this collection of photographs is certainly no different. Uh, we have approximately 16 original images that were taken shortly after the fire, probably uh, during the weekend uh, in, in early May of 1901. Uh, and they range uh, from different views from from what would have been the uh, main uh, city interse- intersections. Um, here we're looking at a, a mounted photograph of the uh, old city armory, uh, which was actually purported to be fireproof uh, when it was constructed in, uh, in the 19th century. And as you can see here, it's it's uh, looks like it was completely bombed out. The uh, the fire came through the city with, with uh, such force and, uh, and, and came through so quickly uh, that a lot of the brick buildings actually exploded from the extreme heat. Um, here we're looking at the old post office, which uh, is actually just a pile of rubble. There's no post office left. And we can see these sticks here along the sidewalks, which um, prior to May 3rd, 1901, were beautiful uh, oak and, and pine trees along the, uh, the city streets, but were essentially left uh, as uh, uh, just sticks uh, after the fire. Um, one of the more interesting photographs uh, that we have in the collection is actually um, of a group of men standing on a barge in the St. John's River, and they're pulling up a diver with one of those large brass you know, diving helmets. Uh, and this diver was sent down to search for bodies because as the fire swept across the city from the western part of the city all the way across, uh, it actually pushed people towards the St. John's River. Uh, towards Market Street, which is where kind of the commercial uh, working waterfront area was. And a lot of people ended up jumping into the river. Uh, They were boarding boats. A lot of these boats were overcrowded. They capsized. Some were uh, actually caught on fire as they were trying to escape. Uh, So many people were uh, believed to have gone into the river, and these divers were searching for the bodies. And, of course, many of those uh, were never recovered. Uh, So that's why we still don't have a a good uh, number as as far as the, the total death toll. Do we know how this fire started? 
We do. It's interesting. Uh, like I said, it was it actually originated in the northwestern part of the city, um, and there was a small uh, ember from a residential chimney that uh, made its way to a local uh, fiber factory. Uh, it was the uh, Cleveland Fiber Factory, where they made mattresses out of uh, dried up Spanish moss. So it was the perfect uh, fuel to start this fire. The workers had gone to lunch right around 12 o'clock. Uh, by 12.30, their entire building was engulfed in flames. Eight hours later, the uh, entire city, 146 city blocks, were completely leveled by this fire. Wow. Well, Jacksonville, of course, recovered from this devastating fire in 1901. Well, that's what makes this particular fire unique. Uh, like I said before, it, it occurred on Friday afternoon on May 3rd. By Monday, uh, many of the local businesses were already starting to rebuild, and they had already actually opened up shop. In fact, we have a photograph uh, here of, of what claims to be the first building erected after the fire, and it looks like it's just uh, recovered pieces of, of uh, timber and things like that that were uh, hastily uh, thrown together. But here the uh, um, proprietors are, are proudly standing in front of their building. Um, but it also uh, helped to initiate a massive national relief effort. Um, thousands of dollars poured into the city of Jacksonville. Uh, and by the end of the year, they had uh, rebuilt a number of the uh, buildings. And within a couple of years, it was completely transformed into uh, a new metropolitan area. So a lot of these old wooden buildings were replaced by these very beautiful um, uh, concrete and, and uh, brick buildings. Well, great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you one more time again I Thought I'd see you One more time again There's just a few things Coming my way This time around now Thought I'd see you Thought I'd see you This is Florida Frontiers Robert Casanello of robertcasanello.com spoke recently with the author of the book, Going Ape, Florida's Battles Over Evolution in the Classroom. Uh, that led to the formation of uh, what's called the Biology Sciences Curriculum Study, which is still in existence today. 
uh, they form a core group of, of educators and scientists to come together and uh, formulate a really good science curriculum and textbooks to go along with it. That's when evolution became a huge part of uh, the curriculum. That was Brandon Haught, author of the book Going Ape, Florida's Battle Over Evolution in the Classroom. He recently spoke to me about what brought the teaching of evolution back to the science classrooms after the controversy of the 1920s and the Scopes Monkey Trial. Well, keep in mind that prior to the 1950s, uh, evolution was essentially out of uh, the textbooks. Uh, you know, maybe some teachers were covering it, but not very thoroughly. You know, all the stuff that happened in the 1920s and 1930s uh, really radically changed the textbooks for the next couple of decades. Uh, so, as I said, that led to uh, evolution pretty much not being in the textbooks uh, anymore. But then, as we got into the 1950s, uh, there was a growing rivalry with the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a feeling here in the United States uh, that we were starting to fall behind them in you know, scientific knowledge and technology. And that was even before Sputnik was launched. We were still having that, that, that tension and that feeling that something just wasn't quite right, uh, that they were surpassing us. And then... We got to 1957 when Sputnik was launched, and that really, really got uh, the United States going and uh, uh, you know, launched this effort to increase science education, to, to better science education. In the early 1960s, Reverend David Berg from Miami would protest a biology textbook that featured evolution. Here, Hot tells me about his personal protest. Uh, in a in kind of a trial run, I guess you can say, some of these biology textbooks got into a Miami high school. And so they were being used in that Miami high school. Well, one day, uh, one of the students at the school went home, said, you know what, you know, Dad, we learned all this stuff about uh, evolution in our class today, and it's all in these new textbooks that we have. And that completely infuriated his father. His father then went to uh, the Miami-Dade school board and went on a very long protest against it. Uh, he, uh, he called it, uh, a quote, this is what he said to the school board, that it was uh, un-American, atheistic, subversive, and communistic. I mean, as a direct quote from him, what he was calling these textbooks and the evolution that was being taught in the classroom. So he fought very, very hard trying to get this out of the classroom. Unlike the protests of the 1920s, Berg did not get any traction on this issue, as Haught reminds us. But eventually he started feeling pressure, he, he claims, a lot of pressure was, uh, was coming on him from uh, the city of Miami. Uh, he was feeling that uh, you know, he didn't feel comfortable living in Miami any longer. In the 1960s, he finally gave up on Miami and he moved out to California, where he founded a religion called uh, Children of God. And if you do some historical research just into that, uh, he was a very, very, very controversial uh, religious leader of this uh, very unusual uh, group out there. However, David Berg's exile from Florida did not stop other protesters. So legislatures didn't start getting involved until we got into the 1970s. Uh, and that's when the first bill started appearing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the very first one was an incredibly interesting one. Uh, we had uh, Reverend Clarence Winslow. Uh, who in the Manatee County, uh, Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, that general area, uh, he started protesting against evolution being in the schools. And his goal was not to, uh, his initial goal uh, was to go national with it. 
He wanted to go all the way up to the U.S. Congress, and he didn't really care what was going on at the local school board at that time. That changed years later. But at that time, he was focused on legislation. And so he wanted to start with the state legislature. And once he got success there, he was planning on moving up to the U.S. Congress. Now, in the state legislature, he was able to actually get the attention of a Representative uh, Dennis McDonald from St. Petersburg. And he actually filed a bill uh, that would have required the reading of the Bible anytime evolution uh, is mentioned in the classroom. Uh, the goal was to have Genesis from the Bible read anytime evolution is taught in the classroom. Now, all the other lawmakers kind of got their hands off it real quick. It was a hot potato. They didn't want to touch it, and so the bill actually went nowhere. But that was the first time since the 1920s and 30s that we started seeing legislation again. That was Brandon Hott, and I'm Robert Casanello. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can be a part of the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.